Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us. We come to your word. I'm asking that you would enable me to speak it clearly, and I pray that it would be accurate and true to your word. I pray that your spirit would be actively working among us, each of us, giving us insight into your word, understanding so we can understand and love our Savior more. Truly, we adore you. I pray that you would help us this morning just to fall even more and more in love with you because of what a great Savior we have and all that he has done for us. I ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Last week, as, as you know, we started our series on the book of Mark. Afterwards, a friend told me, though, that he was a bit disappointed. You see, he kept waiting for me to, to say that Mark was now my favorite gospel. <laughs> Where do people come up with these things? Right? <laughs> so, oh, it just cracked me up. So anyway, I'm going to just go out on a limb. I'm going to declare right now that at least for this time, Mark is indeed my favorite of the four gospels. Okay. <laughs> I mentioned last week also that I was tempted, that I was, had been, was sorely tempted to try and somehow extend our series on the minor, the 12 minor prophets, majoring on the minors. And, but I, didn't, I did not want to violate the promise that I had made to you guys that I would spend no more than two weeks on any one of the minor prophets. A promise, I might add, that I sorely regretted many times throughout our, our series on those 12 books. But this week, I succumbed to the temptation, just, just a little bit. And I think I can do it in a way that I can justify. So before we get into the book of Mark, I want you to go to, for now, what is my favorite of the 12 minor prophets. I want you to go to the book of Malachi with me. I want you to go to Malachi. I know that we mentioned this verse a couple weeks ago when we were finishing up that book, but I want you to go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. I'm going to read just verse 1. I want you to follow along as I do that. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I want you to notice something very significant in that verse. There is not one, but there are two messengers that the Malachi prophesied about. The first one. The one who will prepare the way, well, we talked again about that a little bit, and we're going to see that in a few minutes when we actually get to the book of Mark. We're going to see, of course, that that is none other than John the Baptist. But the emphasis of this verse, the emphasis really of this passage here in Malachi, is on the second messenger, the messenger of the covenant. And that's none other than, and it says, the Lord whom you seek, the one who will come suddenly to his temple. The first messenger was important, but primarily because he would prepare the way for the second messenger, who was none other than Jesus, the Messiah. 
That's really important to keep in mind. The first messenger, yes, very significant, but it's because he's preparing the way for the second messenger, the one who was to come. Now, you might, even, might not even have to flip over a page, but I'm going to chapter 4 of Malachi. Verses 5 and 6. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Let me read those that you follow along in that. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he, this prophet here, Elijah, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I think this is really, it's fascinating, but I think it is so sad. Because, you see, even now, the Jews, they are waiting for the coming of Elijah. Because they understand from this passage, they understand that the purpose of this Elijah coming again, the purpose is to prepare the way for the Messiah. In fact, let me read to you something John MacArthur put in his commentary. At every Orthodox Passover ceremony, even today, a cup is reserved at the table for Elijah. At the circumcision of Orthodox Jewish baby boys, a chair is placed for Elijah. The anticipation is that if Elijah would ever come and sit in the chair or drink from the cup, the Messiah's arrival would be imminent. And so they wait. Even though he came over 2,000 years ago, they wait. Isn't that sad? But yet so interesting to see here again, they understood that the coming of the prophet Elijah was in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. So keeping all of that in mind, I want you now to go, oh, let's go into the New Testament. Let's go to, oh, I don't know, my favorite of the four Gospels. Let's go to Mark. (laughs) Let's go to Mark chapter 1. And I have three things that I want us to see here in our verses. First of all is John's mission of preparation. I think this is also interesting. If you remember, if you were with me last week, you remember that we talked about how Mark actually uses many less Old Testament quotations than the other three gospel writers do. But yet, he starts right out with two of them. Verses two and three, let me read those as you follow along. As is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, I want you to look closely there at verse 2. As is written in Isaiah, the prophet. But then that quotation, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Didn't we just read that in Malachi? Pretty sure we did. Verse 3 now is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So, so why in the world did Mark give Isaiah all of the credit when really this he could have written here as is written in Malachi the prophet and Isaiah the prophet? Why did he do that? Well, you see, it was very common practice in ancient times that when quoting two, two or more sources... Only the name of the most important would be given. And that is exactly what we see happening here. Isaiah is the most quoted of all the Old Testament prophets, not not only in the book of Mark, but really throughout the entire New Testament. And so he was much more prominent 
than our beloved Malachi at this point. By the way, I just want to clear this up. I am pretty confident in saying that when when you and I someday get to meet Malachi in heaven and we get to sit down and talk with him and ask him all kinds of questions and find out all these things, I am pretty sure that he will not be the least bit put off that his name is not mentioned here in Mark. (laughs) I suspect that he will just be greatly honored that the Holy Spirit chose to include his prophecy here in the beginning of the book of Mark. But it's not an injustice here that he not mentioned. It's just simply the way that it was often done. Now, just as the emphasis back in Malachi was on that second messenger who would come, we see it again here. That is the primary emphasis. In fact, look back at verse 1. We covered that entire verse last Sunday. I'm so proud of myself for that. But verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then again in verse 3 there, it says, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now, think of this with me. Let's say that next Sunday the President of the United States is going to come and he is going to worship with us here, right, right here at Red Pine Bible Church. Now, I'm pretty confident in saying that he's not going to just show up unexpectedly or unannounced. We would receive notice ahead of time, and there would undoubtedly have to be some work done in preparation for his arrival and him being able to to gather with us and worship. It was no different in the ancient world. Before a king or an important dignitary would arrive, a herald would go before him announcing his coming. And that herald had actually two duties. A, he would proclaim his coming. That was primary. But also, the second part of that is he would prepare the way for He would make sure that the road, for example, would be cleared and that it would be fixed if necessary and, and that everything was ready for the king's arrival. That's just the way that they did it. So that is exactly what John is doing here as we read about this. He announced the coming of the Messiah and also he prepared the way for him to come. Which, which then leads to our second point, which is John's ministry of baptism. Let's look at verses 4 through 6, and I'll read those as you follow along. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Newsflash. John's last name was not Baptist. Just wanted to know that. At school, when they put him in alphabetical order, he didn't necessarily sit in with the bees. Okay, It wasn't John the Baptist. We call him John the Baptist or sometimes John the Baptizer because that's what he did. I have to tell you, though, I think in our world today, I feel a little sorry for John the Baptist. I think he gets a bum rap. If you've ever seen him portrayed in a movie or on a TV show or something like that, he is this wild-eyed, crazy-haired, borderline nut job, right? I mean, I've seen him portrayed like that many times over. He's just like freaky to even look at because his eyes are just bulging out and he just it's like scary, and his hair is just everywhere. 
That's the way he's portrayed quite often, right? I don't think that's fair at all. Not at all. Yes, he lived out in the wilderness. And yes, he wore practical and very long-lasting clothing made out of camel's hair. I doubt that that's super comfortable, but it was very practical. And he had a leather belt around his waist. So why do we think he's a nut job? Elijah, if you read the Old Testament, he dressed in exactly the same way that Elijah dressed, with the camel's hair and the leather belt around his waist. And as far as eating with the locusts and the wild honey, frugal, he didn't have probably a lot of money. There were a lot of locusts around there. It's not as... He's just not as odd as people always seem to want to present him for. Elijah is never, I've never heard of Elijah being portrayed as a crazy man. But he dressed exactly the same way that John did. So let's give John a break. Can we just agree to do that? We're going to just, yeah. Okay, good. John, thank you. John actually had an important and a very popular ministry. Notice there in verse 5, it says, All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized. Now certainly that's hyperbole. Not every single person from Judea and Jerusalem came to him. But it does show how popular he was. It's like when you get get stuck in a traffic jam, right? Oh, you just go nowhere and you go nowhere and you finally, you get home and you, you say to your wife or your husband, it's like, oh, everyone and their mother was out on the highway today, right? Of course not everyone was out there, but you get the point, right? It's just, it seemed like everyone was doing it. It's just kind of a very expressive way of saying this. And that's exactly what's going on in regards to this. Something really interesting, we don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus said this. He said, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's remarkable. I've read my Old Testament. There's a lot of really incredible people back there. So what that means, Jesus is saying that he was greater than than Noah, greater than Abraham, greater than Jacob, than Joseph, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua. He's greater than Samuel. He was greater than King David. He was greater than than Elijah, even though he dressed like him. He was a lot. He was greater than Eli, He was greater than Elijah, who did incredible amount of miracles. He was greater than Isaiah and Jeremiah and any of the other people who lived before him. That is a remarkable statement of Jesus Christ that he was greater than any of those. But what is really significant about this? Is that Jesus said that, but John never would have. John never shone the spotlight on himself. He always knew. He always knew what his purpose was. He knew what his life's mission was. It was to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And he did that primarily through his ministry of baptism. Notice in verse 4, it says, Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of of sins. We can't separate his baptisms from the need for repentance. We cannot. They go t- 
together. He, he didn't dunk them just, just to make them ceremonially or physically clean. That wasn't it. He baptized them to show outwardly what had happened inwardly. They had repented of their sins. If they hadn't repented of their sins, he was not going to baptize them. They had made a decision when they came to him that they were going to turn 180 degrees, turning from their sin, turning to obedience to God. That's what repentance is. It's important to understand that. In fact, listen to what what one commentator wrote about the word repent. I thought this was so well said. He says, wherever this Greek word, talking about repent, wherever this Greek word is used in the New Testament, the reference is to changing the mind and the purpose from sin to holiness. The baptism that John did It was the outward testimony of the person's change of heart. It showed that they were turning away from their sinfulness and they were committing themselves to following after God. Even in baptizing people, this is what's fascinating to me, John was doing it in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. He knew that that everything that he did was pointing to Jesus the only one who could truly bring forgiveness of their sins. In fact, do you, do you remember what, I know that you do, do you remember what, what John said about Jesus? It's recorded for us in John chapter 1, verse 29. It says that when John saw Jesus coming to him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. John knew It was about Jesus. It was never about John. Even the baptisms were a way of really pointing the people to the coming Messiah. You see, John knew what everyone really needed. Maybe I could say that differently. John knew who everyone really needed. And he pointed the way through his ministry of baptism. Third point is this, John's message of hope. Look at verse 7 with me. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who, excuse me, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. There's a story of a, of a Conductor, the conductor of a very famous orchestra, he was approached once and he said, out of all the instruments that all of the musicians play, he said, what do you think is the most difficult instrument to play? And his response was very quick. Second violin. You see, he knew how difficult it was for a talented person, someone who had dedicated their life to perfecting their craft, someone who had worked very, very hard, spent many hours in practice and preparation. He knew how difficult it was for a person that did all of that to be in a position of not being first, of not being the one who was recognized as the best. Uh, of not being the one who gets to play solos in front of all of the audience, of not being the one who receives all of the applause and the recognition. It was difficult to be second violinist because it was humbling. There's that 
inner part of us that just wants to have recognition and praise. We want to have people pat us on the back. We want people to say that, man, you are, you're the best. Second violinist doesn't get that. John's response, what we just looked at here in verse 7, I think it shows remarkable humility. Untying someone's sandal, which, by the way, it implies, it goes beyond that. That just really implies that then untying it, removing the sandal, and washing the person's feet. That was the lowest, most menial task that a slave could do. In fact, it was considered to be so degrading that Jews weren't even supposed to do it for each other. That's what they had servants for. No self-respecting Jew was ever going to do that. They would have a servant do it. That's what makes Jesus' whole thing when he washed the disciples' feet in John uh, chapter 13 even more remarkable. But that was the most degrading thing that could have been done at that point in time. But yet John, a man who we just saw here, he drew great crowds of people. People came from all over Judea and Jerusalem to come and be baptized. John understood not his importance. He understood the greatness of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. And as such, John knew that he, a mere man, even though he was popular among the people, he knew that he didn't even deserve to do the lowest, most degrading of all possible tasks for the Son of God. John understood who Jesus was, and he understood his role. I've heard it said that humility is not thinking less of. That's that's a typo. You said your bulletin say or. Our church secretary. I have some serious complaints about that person, and I'm just not going to mention any names because I don't want to incriminate myself. But that's a typo. Change if you're if you're a note taker on the back of your bulletin. Change that to of. But humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. I don't know who originated that, but I think that that is so well said. Thinking less of yourself, putting yourself down, thinking, I'm no good, I'll never amount to anything, I can never compare to anyone else. That is not humility. It might seem like humility. It's actually self-absorption, where we're looking in and we're actually feeling sorry for ourselves because we feel like we don't match up to others. You know, it's, it's kind of backward thinking, but when we are putting ourselves down all the time, that is actually pride showing itself. And we wished we were better so we could get more recognition from other people. But thinking of yourself less, focusing more on others, that's humility. I heard someone say this once, and I, I, I don't know if it's true or not. Something just to consider. But I think that it's pretty valid. Whenever you look at a, a group picture that you're in, the first thing you do is you look for yourself. So anytime I see a picture with me in it, I consciously try not to look at myself. A, because it's not a pretty sight. But B, B, I just try to keep myself. But you know, I think that that's true. So next time you just look at a picture, see if maybe the first thing that you do is you glance at yourself. I don't really know how accurate that is. But focusing more on other people. That's what humility is. Humility means saying no to pride every single day and every single hour and every single minute. 
It means confessing your sin of pride every single time it flares up. It means reminding yourself of who you are in Christ. You are a child of the King, and therefore you do not need to engage in self-promotion or bragging. When you're doing that, do you understand that it's just pride showing itself? That's why I want everyone to see my accomplishments so they can think, wow, Rick, you rocked that one. No, that's pride. We have to fight it. We have to beat it down every single time. It shows its ugly head. Humility means reminding yourself that you deserve nothing, but yet you have all of the riches of God in Christ Jesus. It's all about Jesus and what he has given you. So don't feel like you need to compete with everyone else. Just recognize who you are. You are a child of the king because of Jesus Christ. And I think that fighting pride, I think humility, it means reminding yourself daily of what Peter wrote. 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but give grace to the humble. John understood that. But he did so much more than just simply set an example for us about humility. John also gave a message of hope. Look look again at the text here, verse 8. I have baptized you with water, but he, speaking of the Messiah, the messenger who was to come, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That is mind-blowing. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel, who at one time was my favorite minor prophet, (laughs) they all prophesied specifically that God would pour out his Spirit upon the people. And every Jewish person was waiting for that day because they knew that when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the people, they knew it meant that the Messiah had come. But we cannot miss this. It was only God who could give the Spirit. So when John is talking here, he was declaring that Jesus was not only the long-awaited Messiah, he was declaring that Jesus was God. Because only God can give the Holy Spirit, pour him out in regards to that. Think of what that must have meant for the people who were with John when they heard him declare that. These people who had been physically baptized to show their their repentance from sin. To hear now that Jesus, the Messiah, would wash them clean. Not, Not outwardly, but inwardly really important. That's what he would do. That's the message of hope that John was declaring. We read it and we think, okay, that's that's all right. There's a lot in that. It's very significant what he's saying. It's the message that our sins would be washed away through the Spirit of God. Did, Did those who heard John make that declaration, did they know that the washing of sins could only be done by the blood of the Messiah? Probably not. I doubt that they understood that. But that wasn't the point of John's message, not here. Here he was declaring that the Messiah who was to come, the Messiah was God. And John understood his his task 
was to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. But what, this is what I love. As we continue our journey through the incredible book of Mark, my favorite gospel. As we continue our study through this, it will become increasingly clear that salvation indeed does come only through the blood of Jesus. <laughs> yeah, no wonder Mark has become my favorite gospel. And I hope, at least during this series, he might just be yours as well. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for loving us enough to come. Thank you for loving us enough to die. Thank you for loving us enough to conquer sin and death and to rise again. Thank you for loving us enough to give us your spirit within us. Thank you for loving us enough to be interceding for us right now. Thank you for loving us enough that you have promised you will return for us someday. Help us learn from John's example that we can always, everything we do can point the way to Jesus. Free us from that burden, that bondage of pride that just wants to trip us all up. Help us instead to glorify you. Let that be the purpose of our life. Everything we do to to bring glory to you. And I pray that you would help us to humbly declare your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen.